Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, welcome to Holy Week and welcome to the Easter season. And it doesn't matter who you are today, no matter what site you're listening at, no matter your background, whether you're a seeker, a skeptic, a believer, or you're unsure, every single human being within the sound of my voice wants purpose. We all want meaning. We all want peace in the end, which of course is just being human. This is part of the human experience. And this leads all of us, like I said, seeker, skeptic, believer, unbeliever to ask. And our culture is asking and every generation has always asked. Where can one find these identity-giving moments? Can it last more than a moment? Could it be permanent? Is it always fleeting? Some people trust in wealth. Our culture is obsessed now with beauty and youth. Most follow power. All of us in our honest moments want promotion. Our culture now through social media is obsessed by likes and status and followers. And like every generation before us, we've done the same thing. We clamor around movements and systems of thinking found in books or podcasts or other leaders or people, or we even look to ourselves to find purpose. Others of us just want to escape it all. Politics, video games, sex, money, job, friendship, food, travel, addiction, religion, Netflix, spirituality, mindfulness, yoga, manipulation, education, the list goes on and on. And it's here, in this ongoing frenetic search, that three people in the stories of Jesus, just before he dies, bring so much of this home. One is the best expression of a self-made person, political power, self-reliance. Another, the one that had all the family connections, deeply devout, religious, faithful. The other one, a person fighting for what he thought was social justice. He was cause-driven. He was also rebellious and violent. Pilate, the Roman leader, Caiaphas, the high priest, Barabbas, the insurrectionist. We enter the Easter moment just before Jesus is confronted by Pilate and Barabbas. And as we're going to look at each one of these historical people, the question that is being presented to every one of us is, who do you trust in, really? Who do you want? Who can give us real purpose, peace, meaning? Who can establish firmly identity? Now, as we enter in, here's where we are. Jesus has just been betrayed. Judas has given him the kiss. He has been taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, now by the temple police, and brought to the religious court of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. On Good Friday, we're going to spend a lot more time on Caiaphas, but to get to Pilate and Barabbas, you need to start with him. Mark records it this way in Mark 14:60. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Maybe you're new to church, and so you've always thought Christ was the last name. It's not. It means Messiah, anointed one. It's a royal title. It means king of the Jews. Are you the only chosen and appointed agent of God on earth? Are you the son of the blessed one as a variant? Are you the son of God? Now, to the first hearer, to an Orthodox Jew, if you ever claimed to be the son of the blessed one or the son of the most high God, it was the ancient way of saying, I and the creator of all things are equal. I am on the same plane. I am divine. The whole room would have waited 
I'm sure one leader whispered to another, wonder if he doesn't talk. I can imagine Jesus looking at these men. He knows them all because he made them. I guarantee you sadness gripped his heart. They, they don't get it. See, Mark has already declared who Jesus is. The demons, every single time Jesus has confronted them, have confessed who he is. Peter has rightly said he is the Christ. And last week, like we talked, at the transfiguration, God the Father himself declared unashamedly, this is my son whom I love. You listen to him. But Jesus has not disclosed himself yet. And in this moment, just before the Good Friday experience, he finally says who he is. Are you the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. What you say is true. I'm not just a good guy. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just another rabbi. I'm not just a world shaper. I am the one that history has waited for. I am. These two words spark a fire brewing just underneath the surface. See, this is not just confession. This is declaration. Why? This is actually scandal because many of us may not make this connection, but see, when Moses was meeting God for the first time face-to-face -face at the burning bush, he said, what should I call you? And when I go back to the people, who should I say has sent me? And God said, my name is what? I am. And Jesus is saying, I am the same God that met Moses at the burning bush. And before they could rush him or scream or assault him, he speaks so unbelievably authoritative and clearly, so there is now no doubt at all. He quotes Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 to the Orthodox ear. They knew exactly what he was doing. He said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You that judge me now will really understand one day who I am. I sit and will sit at my Father's side, the place of highest honor. I will have all power, all authority, all majesty, and just just so you understand, I will be your judge. As God's representatives, you're supposed to know me, point to me, recognize who the Messiah is. You think you have authority in this moment? No, no, I am judge. I'm the King of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. And I will come back, and not only will I be your judge, every person that has ever lived, no matter what they believe, when they die, will face one person, and his name is Jesus the Christ. Well, that was it. The room at that moment did not clap like we want to. It erupted in violence and rage. The high priest literally tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. Distress, mourning, and outrage. Caiaphas, the high priest, has now charged him with the high crime of blasphemy. And if you know the Old Testament, the death penalty for blasphemy is being stoned to death. We must protect God's people from you, Jesus of Nazareth. You are a false person. You're demonic. You think you're divine, but we have found you wanting. You are not what you claim. You are false. But there was a problem. At this moment in history, they could not kill Jesus because they were a country occupied by another Roman, a Roman occupational government. The death penalty is only allowed to be accessed now by the Roman government, so, so now they need to take him to the Romans. But how could they get the Romans to view him as a threat to them? Because this is a religious dispute, and the Romans don't give a rip about a religious dispute. They have hundreds of gods. Who cares about this? Well, it says in Matthew 27, 1, early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed, and they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Ah, now we arrive. Pilate is called both governor and proconsul in the Gospels. 
These are two different titles, by the way. One referred to the financial officer of a Roman province. The other was the ambassador, the political representative of Caesar himself, but uniquely also had authority over the military to use it as they saw fit. During the time of Tiberius, which this is, certain parts of the empire had fused those titles together, and so Pilate is a two-for-one special. Now, have you ever asked yourself, do we know anything about Pilate beyond the Bible? Oh yes, so many have written about him during his time. One thing you'll learn very quickly about Pilate is how anti-Semitic he was. He hated Jewish people. He was Roman to the core, by the way, believed in the cause, and he was so violent and so dangerous and so grievously evil, many people just called him a wolf. He was a native from Spain, a soldier that gained fame and fortune by fighting the Germans. He eventually married up. His wife, most think, was actually the daughter of Emperor Augustus himself, a man of power, a man of wealth, a killing machine, a, a ruthless soldier, a politician, an elite, and as we're about to see, loved hurting people. He's the governor for 10 years in this region, 26 to 36 AD. Time and time again, he clashed with the Jewish community. He hated them without even blushing. He didn't care about the ramifications. He brought in military units into Jerusalem, bearing the image of the emperor as an act of worship, declaring the emperor the son of God. To the Jews, this was nothing but idolatry and demonic worship thrown in their faces, but he didn't care. Even more offensive than that, he took in military units into the temple and actually took the offerings of the people given to God, and he did it to build the aqueduct to actually to feed water into Jerusalem. He took God's money by force. The story gets darker. When there were riots in Samaria, he took his troops in and wiped them out in such a way it caused fear and panic. And there's this very odd little verse most of us have never caught when we've read the Bible. In Luke 13, 1, where it says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This is an event where some Galileans came and they were worshiping in the temple, but probably were involved in some political sort of uh, violence or, or speaking against the state. So Pilate walked in with his troops while they're worshiping, slaughtered them, and their blood sprays everywhere, and their blood mixes with the blood of the animals who are being presented to God. Oh, it didn't stop there. He brought insult again. He brought shields dedicated to the Emperor Tiberius right into the city as an act of worship, which almost caused mass riots. And Philo, the historian who was writing at that time, wrote about this moment. And he said, Pilate was naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. And he only backed down over the crowds, over the shield incident, because he feared that the Roman government, if they sent an emissary to report back to Emperor Tiberius about his activity, they would begin to expose the rest of his conduct as governor, which was marked by everyone ready bribery, insult, robbery, outrage, wanton injuries, and the ongoing execution without trial that he did time and time again. Philo actually says this in his writings. If you want to know who Pilate is, this is his description. He is ceaselessly and supremely, grievously cruel. He loved hurting people. So back to this moment. Jesus is brought before Pilate. Pilate hates the Jewish people. The Jewish people hate Pilate back. He's being watched by Rome for excess violence and stealing. And on the best days, he's ruthless. So the man with military power and the man with family backing and the shrewd politician and the dangerous soldier slash killer and the one who has Caesar's, Caesar's backing and yet is also on notice is confronted now by Jesus. And of course, never forget, Pilate has full authority judge and jury to acquit or kill. 
It says in Matthew 27, 11, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, depending on what audience is listening, it has two meanings. To the Orthodox Jewish community, when you declare that you are the king of the Jews, you are saying that you're the Messiah, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. You're claiming divine authority and divine personality. And he's already been charged with blasphemy, but that's not how Pilate hears this. This is not why he's asking. They don't care about some theological or religious dispute between Jews that they don't like anyway. To the Roman ear, this is about another thing. This is treason. This is insurrection. There's only one king and his name is Caesar. And he, by the way, claimed the title of son of God. Did you know that? Any person threatening the state had to be dealt with severely and in the now. Are you the king of the Jewish people? Are you trying to take Caesar's place? Jesus' response is so awesome. You have said so. Hmm. What do you think? When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus, though, gave no answer to them. Now, we already know what the leaders and and the religious community has already stated about Jesus before, but what now do they say about Jesus in front of Pilate to get him in trouble, let alone taken out? Well, we find the answer in Luke 23, 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims he's the Messiah, a king. Oh, this is political, religious, personal manipulation where Jerusalem and Rome meet to shake hands and deal with Jesus. The leadership uses Pilate's greatest fear against him, letting Caesar down and knowing he's on watch. And so if he doesn't stand up for the kingship of Caesar, he'll be taken out. Now we know that Jesus never taught these things. We know Jesus actually said the opposite. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But Pilate and the religious leaders are shrewd. They understand domestic politics better than, the, than most. And, and they hate each other. They would have no problem murdering each other. But you know, because this is repeated time and time again in history, new enemies or potential violent situations can, can create strange bedfellows for the moment. Pilate asked Jesus, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to one single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. He was used to people begging or or defending their reputation or doing oratory or trying to have others back their position or trying to overcome the injustice of the moment, afraid, lash out, crumble, flight, fright, freeze. Jesus just stood there and would not do any of it. This was predicted 740 years earlier. The Spirit of God who inspired the prophet Isaiah to prepare the world for the Messiah's coming wrote these words, these descriptive facts about the passion moment of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Well, the conversation takes another turn Jesus stands quietly. The crowd is waiting for Pilate's answer. Pilate thinks he's in control and he's judge, and also he enjoys the cruelty of the moment. He likes being in charge, and so he pulls an ace out of his sleeve. It was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd, and at that time, a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas was there. Oh, stop, did you catch it? Most of us that have grown up in church have never actually known his full name. 
Barabbas, his full name is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus is the Greek variant of Joshua, meaning God is salvation. And so here's what's shocking in the moment. You have not one, but two saviors in front of you. Two people named after Joshua. You have two possible Jesuses, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth that claims to be the Messiah. So which Jesus do you want? Oh, but more, Barabbas is in jail. And he's waiting to be executed because he's a well-known prisoner. Now, this is so important. This is why language matters. The word used in the Gospels for Barabbas is translated violent, lawless man, bandit, or thief. Fine. But when you read all the Gospels, you get the whole story of Barabbas. Because it says in Mark 15, 7, a man called Barabbas was in prison with, notice the plural, with other insurrectionists who had committed murder in an uprising. Barabbas is an insurrectionist. You're like, John, was that like an anarchist? No. He's involved in guerrilla warfare against the Roman occupational government. He's a freedom fighter. He was terrorizing and trying to kill Romans. He was a robber, yes, a murderer, yes, but his group was popular with everyday Jewish people because they kept attacking the Romans and the wealthy Jews that were collaborating with the Romans. He and his group were like an unedited, honest, dangerous version of Robin Hood. But it gets more interesting because most of you know what happens next, but you don't catch it because I didn't either. Do you remember Good Friday, Jesus is executed? And as Jesus lay dying, it says he doesn't die by himself. It says that there are two others, one on his right, one on his left, that are also dying between them. Now read this description now with this new lens so carefully. Matthew 27, 38. Now there were two, what? Rebels who were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. I, I, I have been at 43 Easter's in my life, probably 44, probably one in the womb. Until this week, I have never seen this. The same word, descriptor, used for Barabbas is actually in Greek used for these two other thieves. In other words, they're not thieves. They're co-conspirators. They're co-rioters. They are also insurrectionists. They are the same as Barabbas. Barabbas probably was their leader. And here's the oh my goodness moment. The literal cross that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, would die on was literally Barabbas's personal cross he was supposed to die on. So you've got two Jesuses, and you've got Pilate and the religious leaders, and everything stands in the balance. And the crowd gathers, and Pilate asks them, which one do you want me to release to you? Do you want Jesus, Joshua, Barabbas, or Jesus, who's called the Messiah? He knew it was out of self-interest they had handed over this one Jesus to them. Which Jesus do you want? Who's going to fulfill your needs? I feel some of you as Christians going, oh, this is for the seekers. No, no, lean in. Who's going to fulfill your hopes and your desires? Which Jesus do you think can give you power, promotion, purpose, peace, attention, happiness, comfort, meaning, freedom? Oh, here it is. Who can give you rest? When Jesus came on the scene 33 33 years earlier, the Jewish rabbis of the day were saying that the Messiah was about to come. 
They were expecting and wondering when he was going to come. He was going to bring the kingdom of God on earth. And here's the descriptions of the Messiah that you can read about. They said that when the Messiah would come, he would be in the ilk of King David. He would be an incredible military leader. He'd be a profound politician, and he'd be an incredible worshiper. When he came, this king would rise up the Jewish people. He would arm them with power, military and supernatural, and they would literally slaughter the Romans, and actually Israel would be clean again. The temple would be restored, and we get back to the good old days. And then Jesus from Nazareth shows up, and what does he start teaching? Oh, the kingdom of God is inside of you. Oh, forgive those that actually sin against you. Turn the other cheek. No, pray for the enemies. Bless those who curse you. But Barabbas, oh no, he did what King David did. He took out a sword and took out some Romans. So I'm not sure about this Jesus of Nazareth, because Barabbas seems a lot more to me like what I was expecting than him. So Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, which, by the way, again, blows my mind. In Greek, it's bima. It's the same word used for Jesus' judgment seat in the book of Revelation. And while he's sitting there, he gets a text from his wife. (laughs) Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Executions happened all the time with Pilate. Now, in Roman culture, dreams are viewed as omens. But consider the source. A non-Jewish Roman elite, daughter of an emperor, has a dream about Jesus. Now, I've shared this before, but I need you to remember this again. Every good Orthodox Jewish man would pray one prayer a day, and this was part of it. Thank you, God, Yahweh, for not making me a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. Amen. Do you see it? It's a pagan, idol-worshipping, married-to-a-psychopath dictator, non-Jewish woman whose father claims to be the Son of God that knows that Jesus is not to be touched, and yet the Jewish leaders who have the literal word of God, who are supposed to know, who supposedly represent God, have missed him. This happened at Jesus' birth at the book of Matthew 2. Two years after Jesus was born, who shows up on the scene? Oh, right, wise men. They come to seek Jesus in the scandal, disgrace, and shame and outrage. The indignity of this is that non-Jewish religious pagans are invited by God to meet him. And yet when the wise men come to Jerusalem to find Jesus and they ask the religious leaders, the religious leaders don't join them to go see if the king of the Jews has been born. And so his birth and his death is repeated. The least likely, the farthest people away actually move towards Jesus and those that should be closest to him him are moving away from him. Why? Because they're religious and he's not? No. Because he actually, what he embodies, who he is, and what he teaches threatens how they think you can find peace, purpose, meaning, and identity through politics, religion, and manipulation. So in this moment, the middle ground is gone. You either stick with one Jesus or the other Jesus. The chief priests and the elders have persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. Oh, and to have Jesus executed. Which two of these do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Oh, Barabbas, they entered. And what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And Pilate answered, asked, and they all answered, you crucify him. This is getting out of hand. Pilate would have thought at this moment. This is during a high holiday holiday for the Jews, Passover. There's probably up to a million Jews gathering in Jerusalem to worship. This is a powder keg. And what we as modern hearers do not understand is four years before Jesus' birth, there had been an uprising at the temple during Passover where 3,000 religious pilgrims were slaughtered. Pilate would have known this history. And now we know he's being watched by Rome. 
He doesn't want another religious riot or insurrection. See, much of the time when we read this story, Pilate almost seems to be trying to get Jesus out because he, he believes him. Yes, but no. So much behind this is maneuvering in politics. Pilate says back to the crowd, why should I have, have, him, ha, have him crucified? What crime has he committed? They just shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now that's bad enough, but actually until you read the book of John, you don't know how far the crowd actually went. It says in the gospel of John in chapter 19, shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? Oh, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. See, this is shocking. This shows the level of blindness and compromise by these pastors of their day. Here they say, oh, give us kingship. And then they say, well, actually, Caesar is king, not God. They break not the first, but the first and second of the commandments. They abandon everything they hold dear, and actually they commit the very sin they're accusing Jesus of doing. These religious leaders, these men of God, so blinded by their hatred, miss the very God they supposedly know and worship, so blinded they don't see the Messiah they've been praying for and waiting for. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, Instead, an uproar, uproar was, uh, an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's on your responsibility. And then the moment happens, the darkest moment. The people answered. His blood is on us. Oh, and on our kids. In such haste, they say something so oath-like, so terrifying, so wicked. And I've never caught this before. In the original language, Matthew has called this mob-like group the crowd up to this point. And then in the original language, he changes the name and calls them the people. And why that matters is this, because the people in Matthew, that phrase, the people, is exclusively and only used for the whole Jewish nation. So here's what's being declared. The religious leaders that represent all of God's people, every single Jew on earth, stay to Pilate on behalf of every Jew who has ever lived or is going to live. We take responsibility for the killing of Jesus of Nazareth on us and on our children. Amen. This is called the darkest verse in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this verse, of course, became the place where anti-Semitism was given its birth in the so-called Christian church. And people said, well, see, the Jews killed Jesus, so we should kill them. No, no, no. Everyone kept forgetting Matthew, who's writing this, is a Jew himself and a Roman collaborator and a former tax collector. He knows how messed up he is. The point is this. What is being declared is the whole world stands guilty at this moment. The Jewish nation, the religious leaders, Pilate, all of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Intellectually, religious, unreligious, Jew, not Jew, crowd, pagan, rebellious, and bystander. This is a world event. No one gets out. Well, they released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, we hear this story maybe for the first time, or maybe we've heard it a thousand times. You're like, oh, that was interesting. I learned a few new things. But if we were having Starbucks together and I said, so which one are you? You're like, I'm not like Pilate or Caiaphas or Barabbas. Really? Look at what they represent. All of us together, honestly take a moment. Would we not find ourselves with them? And of course, this brings home the greater moment. And again, for all the Christians in, in all the rooms listening to me, don't say, oh, this is a seeker moment. This is more for you than anyone. What savior do you keep wanting? Caiaphas likes religion. God likes me because of what I do and what I know and what I read. 
Oh, I'm moral and I'm committed. I'm part of the right group and I read the right text and everything's right. But you know, a a little religion compromise is okay if it's going to help us achieve things right in the end. Religion in every single form on earth says God likes me because of what I do, who I know, how I act. I'm saved by my actions. I'm good enough, faithful enough, right enough. God loves me because of me. Whether you're a Muslim praying five times a day and going to Mecca, or a Buddhist, you're trying to meditate all your way into nirvana. You're a good Christian who comes to every single... Listen, if you think that you're saved by what you do and God looks at you and says, oh my goodness, look at the profundity of what they're doing for me. That's religion, that's Caiaphas, that's death. Pilate is the idol of our culture. Pilate is, the, is, Pilate is consumerism. He represents, I'm going to be the self-made person. I'm going to trust in one person, me, in my family. Political power, might, conquest, family connections, violence, intimidation, fear-based living, control. I'm going to make my future. No one else is going to make my future. I'm in charge. I'm going to get it my way. And if you get in my way, I'm going to take you away one way or the other. This can be expressed through education, family, work, job, violence, scheming, doing anything to get ahead. We love Pilate in our culture because he's in charge and no one tells him what to do. Oh, by the way, have you ever asked yourself whatever happened to Pilate? After his tenure, 10 years in this area, later in his life, the emperor Caligula didn't like him and he sent him to Gaul I think it's modern-day France today, he had a nervous breakdown and took his own life. Self-made people always end up dying in the end anyway. Oh, and then there's Barabbas. And we're all like, oh, I'm not like Barabbas. He's a violent murderer, you know. Really? You know, what's so interesting about Barabbas is now we understand that he's an insurrectionist. He's a man fighting the man. He's fighting an inappropriate system. He's using violence to overcome violence. I guarantee if you had dinner with Barabbas, he would tell you, my life choices are justified because I'm not as bad as the ones I'm fighting. See, you can be consumed by a cause, even a just cause, a good cause, a profound cause, but you can become what you hate when you fight that cause. And deeper than that, if you start believing in your core that any cause on earth can give you purpose, meaning, life, and identity, you are Barabbas already. You can be the best environmental activist. You can be fighting racism very appropriately. You can be fighting for the poor, but if you believe in your heart that the cause is what gives you identity, you have already missed Jesus the Messiah. All three of them, if you got them in a room together, they would say, I'm not like those other people. And yet what's shocking is all three of them are trying to get their identity and their purpose, trying to deal with the ups and downs of life by bringing what they can to the table. Each one of them is motivated by fear, self-sufficiency, intimidation, control, to get purpose, meaning peace, even in the moment. Now Jesus walks into the room with these three others, and here is honestly the shocking contrast. He doesn't use any of it. This is the powerful moment in the story, right? Jesus literally takes Barabbas' cross. He chooses it. Barabbas goes free, Jesus does not. Barabbas is unbound, Jesus remains bound. One Jesus dies, the other Jesus goes free. And this brings up the question. Why would anyone want to put our hope in Jesus of Nazareth and not put our hope in Pilate, Caiaphas, or Barabbas when we've been taught our whole lives and our culture, no matter what culture you come from, says those are more important? 
Oh, here's the answer. Because Jesus can give you and give us what we actually want for real. And here's how Jesus articulates it. Way back in Matthew 11. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you what? Rest. Did you see any rest in Barabbas? Any rest in Caiaphas? You see any rest in Pilate? Oh, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am, oh, gentle and humble in heart. Wow, I didn't see any gentleness in those three others or humility. Oh, by the way, if you take on my yoke, Jesus says, you'll, you'll find rest for your, your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. My yoke, of course, is the key phrase to understand in Jesus' moment. Jesus did not come and say, come to me and I'll remove all yokes, which, by the way, our culture teaches. If you throw off all yokes, you'll be free. No, you won't. A yoke is what's put on an animal over their neck to teach them and lead them how to do their work better. Jesus promises rest for your soul, the deepest part of you, purpose, meaning, identity, life. He requires, though, that you take on his yoke. He offers to exchange the yoke that you're already wearing for his. If you don't accept his offer, you remain yoked to sin, lost dreams, broken relationship, dead religion, violence, lies, causes, and the lie that you are independent is just that. It is a lie. We will, as human beings, always serve somebody or something. The choice for us isn't whether we're yoked or unyoked, but which do we want to be yoked to? You want Pilate leading your life? You want Caiaphas leading your life? Do you want Barabbas leading your life? Or do you want Jesus, who is meek and mild, leading your life? It was R.T. France, the famous scholar, who said this. It, it's not the removal of the yoke. It's the new and kind yoke, which makes the burden now light. A yoke is threatening to us because it implies obedience, actually even more threatening, it implies ownership and slavery. So what makes the difference is only the master you're serving. The beneficial effect of Jesus' yoke, his offer, is driven, is, is, derives its character from him who's offering it. Jesus, the son of the blessed one, promises, and Jesus cannot lie, I want to say this again. Jesus of Nazareth can't lie. He's God in flesh. He promises purpose, meaning, and peace in the most permanent of ways, and he calls it rest. So what does this mean? To every single one of you today that is not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. You're most welcome. You could be from another faith. You could be spiritual. You, you could be Christian in, in name only, but you're not a follower of Jesus. You know it. Maybe you're agnostic, you're atheist. I don't know, maybe you're a Satanist. No matter where you're coming from, spiritual, God is speaking and trying to show you the true condition of what owns you. And if you want purpose and meaning and peace and rest, then hear God's word for you today. Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Barabbas' cross is all of ours. Hear the most famous words in the Bible. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have what? Eternal life. Oh, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus, the blessed one, the son of God, is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The crowd said, we want Barabbas. I'm going to give you an opportunity to reverse that on behalf of you and your children and your family in the next few minutes and to say, no, I don't want Caiaphas, I don't want Pilate, I, I don't want Barabbas, I want that rest that that person offers. Now, before we get there, let me speak to every one of us that is a genuine follower of Jesus. You say, well, thanks for that, that was good, and I've already made my choice, and, you know, Easter, no. What is the Spirit of God saying to us, genuinely, in this moment, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have already said yes? Well, let me tie it to last week. Last week, we end our spiritual gift series. We talk about renewal, revival, awakening. We talk about the prophecies been given to our church. We, we walk through the promises of God. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people in every service came forward and asked for personal holiness, asked God to show up and produce revival. So what's the connection between that and today? I'll tell you what it is. Jesus Christ, who lives in you by his spirit, has promised you something, and he does not lie. He has promised that you can have rest, not in heaven, now. So let me ask you a question. Where is the shadow of Caiaphas, Pilate, and Barabbas in your life as a Christian? Because they are the one that is stealing and eating away the rest you have already been given. You say, well, what does that mean? Let me tell you. Are you afraid? Is your life marked by fear? Are you always, do you always have a strategic plan for every situation and you never rest? That is not Jesus. That's Pilate. You come to church every single week, and though you know you're saved by grace, you really want to make sure that God upstairs really likes you. So, mm, that's Caiaphas. You're always trying to defend your identity. Always have an answer for everyone at work. Never appear like you limp. and Not Jesus. If you live your life based in fear, and there's no room for God's sovereignty, if you're always trying to control your family or control your kids or what's going to happen next week at work, if you are perpetually trying to be good before God and violate the grace notion, if you're even involved in good causes, but the good causes have replaced your love for Jesus, then the shadows of your history are having more power than the rest that God has already given you. So here's what I'm going to ask. I can't invent this. I can't preach this. I can't, I can't do a big diagnostic for 3,000 people. So I'm going to ask God, who's alive, to send his Holy Spirit right now to every person listening in every venue and also everyone online. And I ask him to speak and tell us if Caiaphas, Pilate, or Barabbas still are shadowing us. Because the connection from last week to this week is this. As God moves in greater power and revival comes, fear will drop, control will drop, violence will drop, religiosity will drop, and rest will come to his people. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.